COVID. Uh, thankfully, most of those who've had COVID have not been terribly ill, but there have been a couple of people who really have struggled. Um, so do pray for the folk of our church in the, in the week to come. Um, there is just one other announcement. There should be one other picture there. The pastor's tea for retirees. I was going to say the pastor's retirees tea party, but then I thought it might feel a little like the pastor's retiring, which which you would like to do, um, but um, you stuck with me for a little while longer. So we were supposed to have a Christmas tea for all those over a certain age, can we say? <laughs> if you feel like you've retired, then you're invited. Uh, so this was meant to happen before Christmas. We generally do an annual Christmas tea in our garden, um, but it had to become an, uh, uh, a New Year's tea this year. Um, and because Bernice is back at school, it will be in the afternoon. So not this Thursday, but next Thursday in our garden, if you're a retired person, or you're a semi-retired person, or you're a working person, but are sitting at home with nothing to do because, I don't know, for whatever reason, there's nothing to do on a Thursday afternoon for a cup of tea and a scone or something. Um, so that's two weeks time. Alright, so we've already kind of talked about some of the things that we love uh, this morning. We love ice cream, we love chocolate, some of us love nice bry, some of us love sunshine and a day on the beach, others like drizzle and a walk in the mountains, um, some of us love your pet, some of us love your children, I hope that you love your spouse. I'll say no more about that. Um, but over these next couple of weeks, like these next four weeks, I want to start off, start off our year with a little series that I'm just going to call Four Loves, the four things that we should love. And, and what I want us to do in that is just to think again about what it is that makes church, church. What is church about? What is it that a church should do? Um, and I think we can kind of live in these four things, the four things that the Bible calls us to love. Right? So here they are, you can write them down, and then you don't have to come for the next few weeks because you've got them, right? Um, <laughs> you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to love God, and that speaks to our worship, what we worship. We're called to love one another as I have loved you, says Jesus. We're called to love one another within the church, and that speaks to our sense of community. And what community is in the life of the church. We're called to love our neighbours, which speaks to our response to kind of social action, I guess you could call it, that acts of mercy and charity to those in need, perhaps beyond our immediate circle. And then fourthly, it's perhaps not quite a love, but yeah, well, I suppose John 3.16, God so loved the world, and if he loves the world, so should we. Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. That speaks to our mission as a church, right? So we're to love God, that's our worship. We're to love one another, that's our community. We're to love our neighbor, the other, which speaks to acts of mercy and, and charity. And then love the world, speaking to our mission as a church. And I think every church, if you kind of, if you dug down a little bit, every church would probably acknowledge that those four things essentially make up a large portion of what the church should be about. Um, whether you're in a razzmatazz, big old charismatic church, or if you're a tiny little Baptist church in a school hall, I think we all acknowledge that these are the four fundamental kind of things that every church should sort of do. Um, so, uh, 
every church does this, right? Every church gathers to worship God. Surely that's a, a central part of every church's life. And some churches do that really well. And whether they do it really well with, fat, with, with, with bells and funny hats, or they do it really well with a rock band and, lasers, and a laser show, every church to some extent does worship. Some do it well, some do it not so well. And for some churches, that becomes a great emphasis on church life. Other churches perhaps are especially good at, at fellowship, at community, at the relational aspect of church. Perhaps the music isn't quite as great, but you go into that kind of church and go, you know what, these people really actually like each other. It's amazing. Who would have thought? The music stinks, but gee, you know. Um, other churches are fantastic, but missions and evangelism. You, you, you could bring your friend to that church knowing that they're going to get converted because there's an altar call every Sunday, and that's all they ever do. Um, and they're great at that, but perhaps their friendships are a little bit shallow and a little bit weak. Or, or other churches are great at, 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 you know, everybody just wants to go and build an orphanage. So every church does, does, this, does these things to a greater or lesser extent. Some are better at it than others in different areas. I'm not the only one who thinks this. Tim Keller says that there are he says there are five kinds of churches. A doctrine church where, where truth matters. A worship church where we need to experience God. Fellowship Church, where it's all about one another, and Evangelism Church, where it's all about mission and getting new people in, and a Social Action Church, where it's all about building schools and orphanages. Rick Warren talks about the three greats that every church should do. The Great Commission, going to all the world. The Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the Great Commitment, love one another. So again, the same sort of things keep coming up. And if you look at just about any, lots of churches have mission statements or purpose statements or vision statements or whatever it is. And if you look at all of them, they all basically say the same thing. We're here to worship God, we're here to disciple and teach one another, we're here to evangelize the world. And some of them have got it very clever, clever and creative and come up with fancy ways of saying it. But we all, we're here to do all, as every church, are called to do these basic things. So what about us? Like every church, we're called to do all of the above. We do something better than others. There have been times in our church life when we've been more focused on one aspect than the other. But ultimately, we need to be better at doing all of them. It's like pieces of a, a four-piece jigsaw puzzle. Um, and, you know, we struggle sometimes to find the corners of that four-piece jigsaw puzzle. Because some of us struggle. Um, and so I want us to open these four weeks and just remind ourselves again what it is that church is about. And, and just to put this out there, you know these things. It's just, I just remind you of stuff, I think. Um, but that the church is not this kind of nebulous organization, institution over there that you come to on a Sunday and you've done your bit by coming and now you go home. And, and the church, the church stuff that gets done is done by the elders or the deacons. No, no. We are the church. You are the church. And so when you do stuff during the week, you're doing it on behalf of the church. So church is us. And so these four things are these next four weeks. Love God, love one another, love our neighbor, love the dying world, worship, community, mission, and mercy. I have to say that I think I said something similar in the beginning of last year to what I'm going to say this year, that we're to some extent in, in not too different a place. That COVID switched the lights off in 2020. And we tried to kick on the generator in 2021, and I'm not sure if it quite started up properly. And so I, I think if I look back over the last year and the things that we got going, I think we've got Sunday morning functioning again. 2020 was a disaster in terms of church. Well, 
disaster. We got through it, but it was in the garden at the Methodist Church, and then in the end of the wall, and it, we kind of muddled along in 2020. Last year, we got back into the school hall, and we kind of restarted and reignited, and I think Sunday mornings last year were pretty good. But much of the rest kind of didn't happen. We did a thing building Boyer's House at the beginning of last year, great acts of mercy there. Beyond that, we didn't do a lot. Community didn't really happen in a big way. Mission didn't happen in any meaningful way. And it kind of, I've got to the end of last year, the start of this year going, it's kind of starting to feel like church is about Sunday morning and not much else. And I want to try and change that in the coming weeks and months and get back to a place in our church where we're more than just a Sunday morning gathering. That we are a church that worships God, that loves one another, that is concerned for our neighbors, and actually has some sense of our greater mission to the world. So, so as much as we need community and mercy and mission, over, over all of those things must hang this one great thing, this overarching love, the love of God. Because I think, you would say this, I think that you can find community outside of church. You can find a place outside of church where you can make friends and, and, and people who care for you. You, you could find that in, at, a, at, a, at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You could go to an AA meeting and find a sense of community there. Uh, you, you, could, you could find community at the opposite side of that in the bar where everyone knows your name. For those of you who remember the 1980s in Cheers, right? And you can find community there. You can find community at your local country club. So you don't need church for community. You can, you can find other places to do community. You also don't need to do acts of kindness and mercy and charity in the context of a church. There are other things, other organizations that would allow you to do that. You could join the Lions, or you could join the Gift of the Givers. And those kind of groups do great work, and sometimes they do better work than the church. So you could go and do that, but I, I was reminded this last week, something my, one of my nephews said, he quoted St. Augustine, it's quite impressive when a 20-year-old quotes St. Augustine, but he just said this, what St. Augustine said, that we do these things, these good deeds, separate from the love of God, then they are the good deeds that Isaiah speaks of when he says your good deeds are like filthy rags. Good things motivated by anything other than the true love of God is not truly good. So mission, mercy, community, all of these things happen, but unless they happen under the overarching love of God, there's something missing in them. So let me read this morning from Matthew chapter 22. It's a well-known passage, already alluded to it, um, but Matthew 22 from verse 34 Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two demands. So this young lawyer has come to Jesus, and essentially what he said is, Jesus, please rank the commands in Scripture. So I, I, you've heard me say this before, that the, old, the, the, the Pharisees and whatever, they identified six 
613 separate individual laws and commandments to obey in the Old Testament. So there's 613 of them. And there is constant debate amongst Pharisees and teachers of the law as to how do we rank them? Which one of those 613 is the most important? And which of the 613 is the least important? In other words, if you're going to break a commandment, which one would be safest to break? Which breaking which command would require just the sacrifice of a dove, and which one would sacrifice would, would require the sacrifice of your entire flock of sheep, right? Which which one's bad, which one's not so bad? Can we rank them? Can we what's first, what's last on the list? Bernice was in Johannesburg two weeks ago, no, sorry, a month ago, six weeks ago, at the beginning of December, doing metric marking. And one of the markers that she was with was a, a Jewish lady, quite somewhat orthodox in her Jewish faith. And so she, they, they got talking about food restrictions and how, you know, what food can this lady eat, and she's bringing in her own food and whatever. And, and one, of the, one of the interesting things that came up in the discussion was that verse, which I mentioned a couple of times before, about do not cook, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And of course, we know that that's a goat. That, that kind of thing. Um, and and I, I've read in several places and heard a number of people say that what the, the, the application of that particular command is that Jewish people are not allowed to mix meat and dairy. So a Jewish person, an Orthodox Jewish person who wants to obey this law, can't have pepperoni pizza. I mean, how on earth can you live without pepperoni pizza in your life? But you can't, and you can't, no you can't, it's impossible. You can't, no, you, you can't, you haven't lived. Um, how do you eat a pizza with cheese but no meat on it? It's terrible. Um, no cheeseburgers, you can't have a burger with cheese on it because you can't mix meat and dairy. And so Bernice and this lady were talking about this particular command about meat and dairy and the, the kid and its mother's mom, blah, blah, blah. and the lady says, it's, it's not actually about just no burger and cheese. She says, what it is, is if you're having your bacon and eggs in the morning, which you can't have because you can't have bacon, so you have bacon. If you're having your bacon and eggs in the morning, you can't have milk in your tea. In fact, you can't have any milk or dairy for the next six hours. Otherwise, your milk and your tea will mix with the bacon in your stomach, and you will have meat and dairy at the same time and same place. Which I'm like, that's terrible. So you can't have, you can't have a, it's not just that you can't have a cheese steak for supper, it's that you can't have a steak and then follow it with a bowl of ice cream. How can you live with such a, a, a restriction? And so the Jewish people back in Jesus' day would debate this. So where does that law rank? Is it number 112? Is it number 427 and a half? Where does the law about eating, uh, you know, drinking tea with milk after you've had your bacon, where does that fit in the grand scheme of things? And so that's what this lawyer has come to do with Jesus. He's essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, take the 613 laws and please rank them in descending order. Give us law number one. And let us know how it all hangs together from there. And what Jesus does is he doesn't rank the commands. He doesn't say, right, number one on the list, number two on the list, number three, number four, number five. 
What he does is he says, this is the first and most important law. And the entire law hangs off this one command. It's not as though this is the first command and then we can figure out two, three, four, and five in order afterwards. It's that without this command, the rest of the law makes no sense. Without this command, the rest of the law can't be obeyed. Without this command, without obedience to this command, it is impossible to do any of the others. And you can do your, your, your steak and ice cream, but if you don't love God, that, the obedience to that law is meaningless. <coughs> and so, the love of God, every other commandment then becomes a reflection of that command. So let me, let me dive up, dive, what's it? Go around the corner a little bit. Um, often this time of the year, it's New Year's, it's just after New Year's, we're nine days into it, and, and New Year's resolutions are all going to go, right? Any New Year's resolutions? I've given up with them, what's the point, right? Um, but I often hear people say something like this, and it often appears on, I don't know, some Facebook somewhere or whatever, and I, I, I get the intention behind it, and, I, and it's not wrong to say this, but I, I think I can improve on it if you'll allow me. Uh, I think a lot of people will start this time of year, we're going to get things back together, we're going to get our lives all organized, and what we're going to do is we're going to prioritize. Right? I don't know if you've said something like this. We're going to get our priorities right, and our priorities are going to look like this. God is number one, family is, okay, number two, we'll make family number two. Work, number three, recreation, number four, and we'll get it in the right order and we'll prioritize. We'll get our priorities right. And it sounds good. And there's some, it's a great sentiment. But I don't think it's particularly helpful. I think, I think we can be better. Because I think what tends to happen is that we've segmented our life, compartmentalized our life out. And what we've done is, right, God is first, so we'll go to church, we'll maybe do a Bible study or a group, and I'll even read the Bible three times a week. Done. And then you can tick that and say, I've done it. Tick. And now I can do my next thing on the list, which is family. Pepperoni and cheese pizza on a Saturday night with a movie. There we go. Family time. Tick. Done. Now, because I've got God ticked and I've got family ticked, now I can do 10 hours of that work. Because it's fine, right? I've prioritized God, I've prioritized family, and second. So now, now I can do 10 hours of work. And then when it comes to recreation, well, I can spend Saturday morning on the golf course or on the dam or in bed or watching TV or whatever it is that I do because I've, I've got my priorities right, haven't I? And all we've actually done is segmented our lives out. Yes, I think it should go. That in my family, Jesus takes priority. And that the way that I treat my wife, and the way that I speak to my husband, and the way that I respond to my mom, reveals the glory of God in this. And that in my business, God is glorified. And it's not just God is glorified because we got the staff together and had a three-minute prayer meeting before the day starts and then spend the rest of the day swearing at each other and losing our temper and throwing spanners through the window. But that in my business through the day, the love of God is seen in how I deal with the staff and how I deal with customers. In my recreation, God is glorified. Often that's not the case. Often in my recreation, I am glorified and I am satisfied. Let's pretend that I go golfing, which I've done once in the last two and a half years. That when I go, glory, when I go golfing, God is not glorified on the golf course. 
Because I get frustrated. I lose my patience as often as I lose my golf balls, which is often. Um, and the game ends with me wanting to wrap my driver around the other guy's neck because he just scored a birdie on the 17th hole. It, it's just genuinely tends to be a day of frustration and annoyance. And I'm not sure that God can be glorified on the golf course. Is it possible? No, of course I can. Certainly, of course he can. Um, God can be glorified on the golf course and on the dam. Where we we enjoy his creation and where we learn patience and where we learn to deal with kindness. But yes, so you get the sense that it's not that I appease God by saying he's number one and then getting to do anything else that I want to do. But that in every action, every aspect of life, God's love is on display. So it's not like the commands, love God first and then I'll do all the others, I'll just obey them all. No, no. It's the love of God must, is the overarching principle behind every other command. It's not that, well, God first and then everything else that follows, but in every aspect of life, it is all held together by this understanding, the love of God. Love for Him and love of Him. It's not about rankings and commands, but it is the single command in which everything else hangs. And so the question this morning is just, do you love God? Does our church display a love for God? As individuals, do you love Jesus? Corporately, is that expressed in our worship? In our worship through song on a Sunday? And to be honest, what does it even mean to love God? We know what it is to love ice cream. We, we kind of know what it is to love our spouse. We know what that should be anyway. But does it not sometimes feel like love for God is a little insubstantial because you can't see him he just feels sometimes distant which well, is the thing yet there will be times when we we worship what we love I know something really I mean I love ice cream but I've never put it in a bowl on a table got down on my knees and worshiped my ice cream none of us have done that at least I hope you have we could but you know if you really love something You'll sacrifice for it. So if you really love ice cream, you'll certainly eat your supper thinking about that bowl of ice cream that is to come. And you'll realize that you'll need to save a space for the bowl of ice cream. And so you will sacrifice peas <laughs> and Brussels sprouts for the sake of ice cream. Because we sacrifice, actually you don't, because there's, there's always space for ice cream. It doesn't matter what you eat, there's always space for ice cream. You sacrifice for what you love. If you go to the shops and you're on a tight budget and you've got 50 rand and the choice is ice cream or kale. It's ice cream, isn't it? Uh, sure. Unless you want to be weird and experiment and try kale ice cream. You know, try that up, yes. Um, if you really love something, you'll sacrifice in order to have that thing. It's the thing that you spend your money on. It's the things that capture your thoughts and some of you are not even because all you can think about now is ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. <laughs> Some of you are thinking kale, kale, kale. Um, I don't understand that, but that's fine. It's what you worship. Um, but you, you worship the thing that you believe deep down in your heart of hearts will bring you satisfaction, meaning, joy, fulfillment. And again, ice cream fits that. Blood and blood. You may not even be aware of the thing that you love more than anything else. Until you begin to start thinking, what do I sacrifice for? 
will I make time for above all else? What do I spend my money on? What, what makes me angry when it's taken away from me? I beg you. That's what you love. And so the, the, the thing then becomes this then. How do we love God like this? How does this explain? Do we worship Him like this? Do we sacrifice our time and our treasure and our talents and our things for Him? And I think again, for some, worship just means that thing that happens on Sunday morning that I pitch up to a team when we sing a song or two. And singing is a great way to express our worship, to express our devotion of God. But actually, if, if you get through the singing but can't wait for, for it to finish so that you get, can get onto the golf course or you can get onto the beach or you can get into the shopping mall or you can get into bed or you can get to the TV or whatever it is, you may well be worshipping something else even while you're singing songs to Jesus. I wanted to read from John Piper this morning something that he says about worshipping. He speaks, uh, writing this section of his book, talking about that, that part of the scripture where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and where um, he's, you know, the woman says, well, where should we worship? Should we worship on that mountain or on that hill? Should we worship at a temple or in a school hall? Where does God want to meet us? And Jesus says to her, remember those words, God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. Worshiping in the spirit is the opposite of worshiping in merely external ways. It's the opposite of empty formalism and traditionalism. Worshipping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. Worship must have both heart and head. Worship must engage emotion and thought. Truth, without emotion, produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. Kind of like people who write generic anniversary cards for a living. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. The true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affection for God is rooted in truth and not the bone and marrow of biblical worship. We worship God by knowing who He is and by being stirred by the truth of who He is. If you worship God and love Him more than this, love Him more this year, then you need to know who He is. My friend Trevor has said before several times that the five-year-old loves Dad more than the fifteen-year-old neighbor, even though the fifteen-year-old neighbor knows more about the Dad. But I've had to say this to Trevor time and time again. The five-year-old needs to grow up at some point. And as the five-year-old grows up and learns to know what is dad's favorite color, what is dad's favorite sport team, what job does dad do, what is dad's life experience being, the love of that five-year-old will deepen. It's not enough for us to just have a childlike, simple love for God and leave it there. The more we know him, the more we know about him, the more we love him. And like John Piper says, I'm not talking about some dry, dusty, empty theoretical knowledge. The more that I've come to know my own father, the more I am emotionally drawn to him. What will you do to increase your knowledge of God this year that you may love him more? Will you read your Bible? 
Will you regularly attend church? Will you attend a home group? Will you pray more? We are to be a church of worshippers. We are to be a people driven by worship and the glory and love of God. So I could leave it there. We could close and pray. And you could all go home today saying, Gee, thanks Chris, I'm inspired. I'm going to try harder. That will be New Year's resolution number 67. And like the previous 66, it will fail by Tuesday. Because although we're called to love God, and although the command is for us to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are fickle creatures with defaulting hearts that love all the wrong things. And so I can't ladder you up to word to love God, no matter how many wonderful songs I strum along on my guitar, no matter how many inspiring sermons I preach this morning. I could preach for another three hours, and trust me, I can. Just give me the chance, Brad. Um, but it doesn't matter how inspiring and how long I go on for. I can't make your heart love him more. And I don't even think that you can stir it up yourself to try harder to love him more. Here's what the Apostle John says in his little letter at the end of the Bible. He says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a total sacrifice for our sins. And then in just a few verses later, He says this, We love Him because, what? Because we read our Bibles, because we prayed more, because Chris preached a great sermon, because because we try hard. We love Him because He first loved us. See, you don't come to love God more by trying really hard to be loving and think happy thoughts. We love Him more as we reflect on His great love for us. Earlier in that little letter, John had said this, how great the Father's love that has been lavished on us, that we have been called the children of God, and that is what we are. John's constant refrain in that little letter at the end of the Bible is, can you see how much he loves you? And your heart, your love may grow cold, you may uh, struggle along and, and doubt and see his love for you? Do you doubt the love of God? I think some of us do from time to time. I think some of us think, I'm not particularly lovable. I think some of us look at the circumstances of life and go, this is not good evidence of his love for me. This is evidence that he's left me. Others perhaps are a little self-righteous and would go to the other side and say, of course he loves me, what not to love? But as we stand humbled at our great need and in humble awe at, at his great love, how can we not be transformed? Our great need, our great faith, our, our desperately sinful nature in that, recognize his great love for us.
This is love, that He sent His Son to die for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, before we had even had the thought that we should perhaps love Him, He loved us and sent His Son to us, for us, to atone for us, to take our place, to die for your sin and mine. We're commanded to love Him with all our hearts, our mind and strength. But left to our very best intentions, we simply cannot. We can't stir up sufficient love. Our hearts are fickle. We love all the wrong things. Our love grows cold. We become distracted. We stumble and we fall. But we can know this. He loves me. And so we're going to end this morning by sharing the community together. I, I, I hope you remember to bring something. I'm hoping that we don't need to carry on doing this and perhaps we can get back to having some sort of communion prepared uh, for us on a Sunday morning. But in this simple reminder day is to be reminded again of His great love for us. To be reminded this morning of His great love for you and me. So if you have some bread, would you take some? Take the moment to once again see a vision of the Savior on the cross as his life ebbs away, his blood is poured out as he takes on the sin of the world. That this is this is love. He, our Savior, has given His life for we, sinful, stumbling, faulty, fickle, cold-hearted, and yet He loves us.
Our Lord, this morning we thank you for your great love for us. For all that you have given. We thank you for life given to us. Thank you for your love on display. And Lord, this morning as we reflect once more on your great love for us, would that stir within us an affection for our Savior? Lord, stir our cold hearts. Stir within us again, the Lord, deep, desperate longing for you. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. How great is our God again?
Thank you. 